I'll read for us Matthew 5, verses 3 through 12. So if you're able, would you stand with me as we read from this part of God's Word? Pay careful attention. This is God's Word, faithful and true. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Lord, send out your light and your truth. Uh, Lead us to yourself by your word. We ask that your spirit would illumine our hearts and minds to receive these things which are written for us, to believe them, to understand them, to lay them up in our hearts, and to practice them in our lives. And Lord, in all things, we pray that you would help us always to see Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen. We're going to be focusing this morning on uh, verse 9 of this section where Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. But I wanted to read the entire thing just for context. We all, in many ways, uh, resemble our, our family members, don't we? Usually that's through physical appearance. You know, you find yourself looking at pictures of your father or your grandfather when he was younger, and you say, oh, I can see how that looks like me or another sibling. Uh, Many times we resemble our family through personality, through sense of humor. Some of those things are just passed down uh, naturally, but much of it is learned. Uh, my mom is adopted. She was adopted at infancy, and, uh, and so she never knew her biological parents. Later, we learned who they were and found out that she had two older sisters. She never had met uh, any of them. Uh, and, and we have no doubt that she resembled her biological mom and dad in, what she, in, in, in her physical appearance. But my mom acts like her mom and dad who adopted her and raised her from birth on. Uh, She has my grandmother's sense of design and style. She has my papa's kindness and sense of humor and large-hearted love for other people. My mom's sister was 14 years older than her when my mom was, uh, when when they adopted her, she was already 14. They were best friends, and they were like two peas in a pod, very, very similar to one another. Even though she was adopted into this family and and her genetic code came from somewhere else, she was shaped by the people who raised her. She was shaped by her mom and her dad and her sister and very much resembles them. And, And we're all the same in our own families as well. 
that same idea of family likeness, family resemblance is true of, of God's family, of belonging to God's people in the church through faith in Jesus Christ. When, when the Lord saves you, when he brings you out of darkness and into light, when he brings you out of hostility towards him and into friendship with God and makes you part of his people, uh, he calls you to grow and to become more like himself as your heavenly father. We're called to imitate Jesus as our elder brother, to walk as he walked, to live as, as he lived, as we follow him by faith. And, and as we grow, uh, one way to describe growing as a Christian is to say we're becoming more and more like Jesus, that that's our goal. But again, it doesn't have anything to do with your physical appearance. It has to do with your character. It has to do with your heart, who you are on the inside and how that's expressed in the way you live, the things that you believe, the way that you treat others, the way that you honor God with your life. And specifically here, Jesus in this section of the Beatitudes, these blessings that he pronounces on his people, uh, Jesus pronounces a blessing on those who are peacemakers, those who seek out ways to make peace. And that blessing is this. He says, if you are a peacemaker, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called, identified, marked as sons of God. We should note here that sons is inclusive. It's not just talking about the uh, the men is inclusive of male and female, just as in the same way the bride of Christ is inclusive of male and female. There's lots of metaphors in the Bible, but it includes all of God's people. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, why does Jesus say it this way? Part of what he's getting at is that peacemaking, rightly understood, is one of the things that marks, that shows that you belong to your heavenly father as one of his children. He is the ultimate peacemaker. It's part of his character and therefore must be part of ours as well as his children. So what does it mean for us to be peacemakers? Uh, well, let's look at two things together this morning. I want to look at uh, what God does as our peacemaker and then how we should live in response to that as his children seeking to be peacemakers. What does God do as our peacemaker? I think it's probably obvious, but it's worth saying anyway, uh, that when Jesus talks about making peace, he's assuming that there's sometimes conflict. And in particular, he's assuming and pointing up the fact that there's conflict ultimately between us and the living God because of sin. God created the world. He created first people, human, uh, first humans, Adam and Eve, to live in harmony and fellowship with him, to live in peace with him. And yet Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. They, and, and through that sin, death entered in and this hostility, this enmity between God and man, and it trickled down to all of us as well through their sin and even our own sin. We are not born automatically at peace with God. There's conflict. There's uh, hostility between us. There's separation between us and God because of our sin. And because of our sin, 
we are incapable on our own of making peace with God. It's, it's not something that we can initiate in our own strength, in our own effort, by our own devices. God has to be the one to take the first steps. He has to be the one who initiates it. He takes the first step toward peace, and we respond. And you see that all throughout the storyline of the Bible. You go all the way back to the beginning, Adam and Eve, peace, harmony, joy, flourishing in the Garden of Eden, and then all of a sudden there's deceitfulness from the serpent, and Eve believes the lie, and Adam is right there with her, and they eat the fruit that God said not to eat, and when they do, their eyes are opened, they realize that they are naked, and now they are covered in shame because of their sin against the living God. And what do they do? They hear God coming in the cool of the day, uh, Moses tells us, and they run and hide as if you could hide from God. But that's what they do. They hide and God shows up and he begins to speak to them. Where are you? Why are you hiding? Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat? Of course, he knows the answer to all these questions, but he wants them to say it. What's he doing in that? He's, he's pursuing He's, he's initiating peacemaking with Adam and Eve here. And in the midst even of his judgment and curse upon sin, he tells them this promise that one day there will, there will come a descendant from Adam and Eve who will deal with the cause of this hostility between them and God. He will crush the head of the serpent. And even in that scene in Genesis 3, the Lord kills an animal. Adam is not the first one to physically die. An animal is. And he takes the skin of that animal and he makes clothes for Adam and Eve and he covers them. He's making peace with his people. That same peace through sacrificial substitutionary death shows up again in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement. God dwells in the midst of his people through the tabernacle, just kind of a picture of Eden itself. A holy God dwells among an unholy people, and because of that, there has to be a way for an unholy people to approach God without being completely wiped out because of their sin. God, again, initiates peacemaking. He provides for them daily sacrifices, daily offerings to atone for their sins, and then this one big day of atonement, this one big sacrifice on the day of atonement, where all the sins of the people are forgiven as the blood of a bull and of a goat is shed as a substitute for the people, as a way of forgiving their sins so that they can live in the presence of God. All of those things come to a point in the cross of Jesus. At the cross, Jesus fulfills all of those promises along the way that God would make peace with his people, that God would deal with the sin that so easily entangles us and that separates us from God. And Paul says about the cross of Jesus that he himself made peace through his cross and that he himself is our peace because he takes upon himself the very thing that separates us from God. He became sin in our place so that we through faith might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And Paul says in Romans that because of what Christ has done, those who believe in him have peace with God through faith in what Christ has done. 
the Father removes the very thing that stands between us and him so that we can be brought back and be made right and have peace with God through what Jesus has done. You see, God does not let sin, he doesn't let your sin against him keep you from him, but rather he loves and delights to save sinners and restore that broken relationship between us and him through the gift of his son, the Lord Jesus. God is the ultimate peacemaker. And he calls us as his children to imitate, to demonstrate, to give evidence that we belong to him through our own peacemaking with one another. So we ask the question, how, how do we do this? How do we imitate him in this peacemaking? Uh, for us, if you know God's peace through Jesus, you know that the hostility between you and God has been removed, it's been put away as far as east is from the west, that your sin has been tied to a millstone and dropped to the bottom of the ocean and it'll never rise up against you again. Your sins are completely forgiven and you have peace with God that cannot be shaken because the work of Jesus for you is enough and it never changes. If you have that kind of peace, we're called to be like God and to seek peace by not stirring up problems unnecessarily, by not delighting in creating discord. I recognized uh, earlier in this week my own tendency to do this, and maybe you can sympathize uh, with my weaknesses here a little bit. I think we all share in this in some way. If you're around somebody and they start complaining about something, what's your initial immediate reaction to that? You want to jump on the bandwagon, right? You want to, you know, relate. Be like, oh, yeah, I hate that guy. Or, what, you know, you just jump in the boat with them and you begin to complain. My brother and I were talking the other day. He's, he's here with my parents for a little while. And he had moved his car out of the driveway so that some of the landscapers could park there. And when he moved his car, he parked on the other side of the road on somebody else's a neighbor's property. He forgot that he left his car there. He left it there overnight. Didn't think, you know, anything about it. The next day, uh, we were talking, and he said, oh, let me go get my car. I left it over across the street. And uh, it's kind of a nondescript location. It's not clear whose property it is, you know, all that kind of stuff. Well, he goes over to get his car, and there's a note on the windshield. It said, please. But it said, uh, please don't park on our property. If you do it again, I'll, I'll, um, I'm going to have your car towed. So he came back over, and he's like, man, I can't believe, you know, I got this note. It was only there overnight. And I immediately started complaining about all of our neighbors. Like, yeah, I mean, not, not, not all of them. Uh, <laughs> just started complaining about the neighbors that were across the street from my parents' house in the same neighborhood. We love our neighbors. <laughs> but my point is, not how much we love the Parises, but the point is how much my heart just immediately was like, oh, yeah, you know, some neighbors, what are you going to do? I mean, I can't believe they did that. And so I'm complaining with them. And all of a sudden I realized, like, he was parked on their property. Like, he didn't go over and ask. I probably would have done the same thing if somebody parked in my yard without asking. And I mean, it just, we're drawn to this. You, you have to kind of actively resist the tendency to create discord. We, we all do that. Uh, and I saw it in my heart this week and, and then had to confess that to my brother who didn't care. Uh, at any rate, <laughs> consider our current culture um, 
and how much this pushes against kind of what we tend to see in the world. Our, I, I would put it this way, and maybe this is a bit of an exaggeration, but uh, go with me. I think in many ways our current culture kind of spins on the axis of anger. Um, just think about how you see this in social media, the news outlets. It thrives on conflict. It thrives on discord. Now, that's not to say, like, everybody just grab hands and just get along. That's, we'll, we'll get to the solution. But notice how much of our world spins on anger. Uh, you know, dog bites man, nobody cares. Man bites dog, that, that'll get your attention. And, and conflict is the same way. Uh, y'all never heard that? Um, <laughs> conflict is the same way. It thrives, our world thrives on conflict, stirring up division. Peacemaking does not attract an audience. And the church is not immune to that trend in the broader culture. We have to fight against it, but we're not immune from it kind of making its way in because you know, the world is so small now. <laughs> you know, everything is everywhere and everybody knows uh, because of the internet and so forth. So the church is not immune from this. There was a, a, an unfortunate example of this many years ago. Some of you may have listened to a, a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill about the Mars Hill Church in Seattle. Um, it's no longer in existence but their, their pastor was kind of known to be a kind of combative, divisive guy. And he was kind of at the front end, front end of realizing the power of social media for getting a message out, and particularly kind of using YouTube as a way of doing that. And so he was known kind of in the pastor, to just, in the pulpit rather, to just yell at the people in front of him. And people began to realize that this wasn't, for the congregation, and thousands of people were coming in Seattle, this incredibly secular city, but they were coming to this church. Lots of good things were happening, but, but he was kind of known for this combative, combative approach in the pulpit, and what folks kind of realized later, that part of what he was doing was tapping into the things that promote videos on YouTube. You know what one of those things is? Yelling at people. <laughs> Anger. Discord. Stirring up conflict in unnecessary ways. The church is not immune from that. The algorithm rewards anger and conflict. That's not the only thing it rewards, but you get the point of what I'm saying. In many ways, we've been, we've been conditioned to think that conflict is normal and strong, that it's a sign of uh, a strong personality, that it's a sign of character, and that peacemaking is somehow a sign of weakness a sign of compromise, that to listen to somebody else's viewpoint and to change your mind means that you're weak and that you don't have conviction. That, that's, we're kind of trained to think that way. And then we come to the Bible and we see Jesus saying, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And we, we kind of react against that. Does this mean I'm supposed to be a doormat? People just walk all over me? And I don't ever push back against things that are wrong. Jesus' way is different from the world's way, and it's different often from what we think his way ought to be. Peacemaking does not mean that you ignore problems and conflict. 
Peacemaking means that you seek the solutions to those problems by God's grace, motivated by his love that brought peace to you through his cross. You're not to be a doormat or a doorbuster either way, but we're to seek to imitate Jesus in the way that he brings peace to God's people. Jerry Bridges is helpful in this uh, in his book on humility. He points out sometimes the problem, the conflict is with other people, right? Somebody has sinned against you. Somebody has stirred the pot a little bit and created conflict and hostility. What are we to do? Jesus says, go. If your brother has sinned against you, go and and tell him. And the goal of telling is to win your brother back. And if he listens and he repents and he asks forgiveness, then praise God because there's been restoration. There's been peacemaking. The thing that divided you has been dealt with by God's grace. Trust God with the outcome. Sometimes it doesn't work out the way we hope. Sometimes other people are the problem. Sometimes you're the problem. Sometimes I'm the problem. Uh, sometimes I'm the one complaining about the neighbor and not realizing, oh, you should have asked them first, you know, gotten permission. Uh, you think the other person is a problem when you realize I'm the guy. I'm the source of this conflict. I'm the source of this problem. What can I do to make peace? Scripture again and again calls us to be quick in acknowledging our sin and asking forgiveness. And as Christians, the good news is that we have the freedom and the privilege of doing that because what we believe in the gospel, that my sin is forgiven, that nothing I do because I'm in Christ, nothing I do can separate me from the love of God, which is mine in Christ. And so I don't have to build up the wall of my righteousness. I don't have to build up my defense when, I'm, when it, somebody points out that I'm wrong. I can be quick to acknowledge it because my righteousness is in Jesus. And that'll never change. It'll never diminish. I can be free to acknowledge my sin and seek forgiveness and make peace when I'm the problem. Sometimes other people are the problem. Sometimes you're the problem. In either way, uh, in either scenario, we seek to address the problem with God's grace, motivated by God's love, with that goal, trusting the Lord with the outcome, with that goal of making peace where there is not peace. Scripture puts an emphasis on this. Romans 12, Paul tells us, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Those are strong words and good words for our hearts to hear this morning. I'd like to kind of bring this to a point with an illustration that I've shared before, but it's, it's the best one I can find to illustrate what this looks like in the lives of God's people being peacemakers and demonstrating through peacemaking that God is your father and that Jesus is your savior. There's an article uh, written many years ago about uh, the cruelty of apartheid and the wonder of amazing grace in South Africa. And the article tells the story of a courtroom trial Uh, in South Africa as the nation was beginning to deal with um, all of the evil things that had happened during apartheid and were were seeking to reconcile things and bring justice where needed. And in this particular story, there was a, a frail black woman, 70 years old, 
in the courtroom uh, facing several white security officers, one of whom's name was Mr. Vanderbrook. Mr. Vanderbrook had just been tried and found guilty in the murder of this woman's son and her husband several years before. They learned in the midst of this courtroom trial that Mr. Vanderbrook had come to this woman's home many years before, had taken her son, shot him at point-blank range, and then burned his body while he and the other officers partied nearby. Several years later, this officer and his cohorts returned to take away this woman's husband as well. And she didn't know what happened to him for, for many months. Two years after her husband's disappearance, Vanderbrook came back, took the woman, uh, this uh, woman who had lost her son and now had no idea where her husband was, uh, came back and took her and brought her to the place where her husband was beside a river where he had been bound and beaten, and he was lying on a pile of wood. As they poured gasoline over his body and set him on fire, his last words were, Father, forgive them. In the courtroom, the judge, having pronounced the guilt of this man and these other officers, um, looked to this woman and asked her, What do you want? How should justice be done to this man who has so brutally destroyed your family? She said, I want three things. I want first to be taken to the place where my husband's body was burned so that I can gather up the dust and give his remains a decent burial. And then she continued, my husband and son were my only family. So secondly, I want, therefore, for Mr. Brant Vanderbrook to become my son. I would like for him to come twice a month to the ghetto and spend a day with me so that I can pour out on him whatever love I still have remaining in me. And finally, I want a third thing. I would like Mr. Vanderbrook to know that I offer him my forgiveness because Jesus Christ died to forgive. This was also the wish of my husband. And so I would kindly ask someone to come to my side, lead me across the courtroom so that I can take Mr. Vanderbrook in my arms, embrace him, and let him know that he is truly forgiven. As one of the court assistants came to lead the elderly woman across the room, Mr. Vanderbrook, overwhelmed by what he had just heard, fainted. And as he did... There was silence in the courtroom until someone in the back began to sing, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, the Saved a Wretch Like Me. That's the scene in the courtroom. Imagine the scene in heaven. The father rejoicing, This is my child. There's a peacemaker reflecting the peacemaking initiative of a holy God whose love is so deep that he seeks out his enemies to make them his friends, even more his beloved children, by giving his own son in our place that we might know him as our father and know that we are truly forgiven because of what Jesus has done in our place. I can imagine God saying, that is my child. Look how she acts like me. If you're here and you don't know the peacemaking love of God, then you need to see that your ultimate need is to be reconciled to him, 
the one who made you has called you to love him and your sin has separated you from him but he's made the way for you to be made right through Jesus who is our peace see what Christ has done for you and respond to God's initiative with faith in his promises if if you're a believer you've embraced God's peace through Jesus on your behalf Making peace is part of God's gracious character and action. He does not ignore your sin, and because of Christ, he has not squashed you because of your sin with his wrath, though he's well within his rights to do that. Rather, he has dealt with your sin by giving you his sinless son as a substitute in your place, satisfying justice so that mercy might flow to you through the cross of Jesus. When people look at you, whether it's your Facebook profile or whatever it may be, your actions among others, when people look at you, do they see your peacemaking Savior? May it be so. Would you pray?